Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. You are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences that feature the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. Finding your voice as an audio storyteller, or any other sort of artist for that matter, is hard. It takes time, practice, patience, and you have to be willing to take risks. This is something Nick van der Kolk is no stranger to. He's the creator of the podcast Love and Radio, which, since it started, has pushed the conventions of how we tell and hear stories and sound. In Nick's session from the 2016 Third Coast Conference, he talks about how to take risks and experiment with new forms and ideas while always maintaining a sense of play. Here is Embrace the Chaos. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for coming out. Um, so I uh, am the host and creator of a podcast called Love and Radio, um, which I've been doing f- since uh, October of 2005, um, which, is, uh, which is a long time ago now. <laughs> um, I, uh, I remember the sort of first hyping of podcasts that happened at the time, um, Yesterday morning, they were playing some of the uh, the session from that year's Third Coast, um, which was my very first Third Coast that I ever attended. And um, there was a lot of sort of promise at the time uh, of sort of what what podcasts could achieve and how it was going to break down these barriers. And uh, and that never really came to fruition at the time. Um, so for me, having sort of lived through that period, I'm I'm still kind of uh, it still feels a bit surreal being in this this period now when um, Third Coast like almost feels like a podcast conference, um, and that er- meeting all these people who are doing their own shows it's um, it's super inspiring. Um, so um, you hear people talk about this as being the golden age of podcasts, and um, and I think that is true. Uh, I think. I think the way people mean that when they talk about that is just there's, there's a lot of support for them and there's new podcasts coming about. Um, but I think the analogy actually goes even deeper than that. Um, if you think about the, um, the golden age of Hollywood cinema, um, this was a period 
uh, kind of at the end of the silent film era up until 1960. Um, and it really was the point at which some of the sort of the ground, uh, the ground rules for the language of cinema were developed. Um, and I think that's what's kind of happening right now with podcasts. Like we're, we have figured out what is, what the, what is the language for reaching our audiences. Um, now there's a, this is a great era for film. There are a lot of great movies that came out in this period. Um, Casablanca, one of them, for sure. Um, but what, what made them good was, was establishing these ground rules. So um, they had a clear beginning, middle, and end. In general, they were very uh, linear. Um, they very much respected the fourth wall and didn't um, acknowledge kind of the artifice of film. There were clear protagonists and antagonists. And this was also the period in which um, a lot of the, the ground rules, like I said, for editing, lighting, and musical cues um, were developed. For me, I have always sort of personally gravitated towards the era of Hollywood cinema that came after, which is uh, usually referred to as New Hollywood. Um, this was a period in which um, the whole studio system was uh, in huge upheaval and partly as a result of that, a lot of film directors were given a lot more leeway um, to make exactly the kind of films that they wanted to. And a lot of the conventions from before, um, although they were still being used, um, were kind of turned on their heads a little bit and looked at it in different ways. So films from this era, I think, had a lot more moral ambiguity. Um, they played around with unconventional narrative structures. Um, they were much more comfortable with irresolution at the end of a film. Um, they had a lot more graphic content as well. Um, and they were generally a lot more interested or a lot more comfortable with making the audience feel uncomfortable as opposed to making the audience feel um, elated or sad or all these other sort of basic emotions, right? They could be more confusing in a way. So right now, um, right now we have this, this huge world of podcasts um, and we are laying the ground rules, but as, as many, as much as there are more podcasts now, I do find myself um, somewhat frustrated at, at how samey a lot of stuff is. Um, how many people here have rented a car from an airport? Okay, I'd say a little over half. And when you rent a car at an airport, what's like your go-to car company? The cheapest one, right? <laughs> um, now, car rental companies, are, it's a very, very competitive market. And they're selling sort of the same basic service to everyone. Um, so there's not gonna be that much difference between the different companies. They're mostly gonna be just competing on, on price and then maybe a little bit the, like the quality of the vehicles as well, right? Um, you see this also uh, with, say, cell phone companies. Um, 
same basic product. There's not a whole lot of variation in what they're trying to sell people. And so they all kind of offer the same features and they get kind of the same. But for those of us who make radio and those of us who make podcasts, um, we're not providing sort of a pure service in that way. What we're providing people for people is experiences, right? And what makes experiences uh, important uh, and why people seek out experiences is to experience, is, is to have novel, uh, novelty in their lives. And so being unique is not the, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it is a very valuable thing in the context of anyone who sell, sells experience, you know? And that's true of, uh, that's true of restaurants, you know, that's true of, um, of any kind of sort of entertainment, party entertainment, or whatever it is. Um, and the reason for this is because I, I've, I've become obsessed with this concept uh, known as habituation, the psychological concept, and it, it really is a, is a fundament, fundamental part of what it means to be human. Um, and habituation is basically, at the core level, uh, whenever you have any kind of stimulus and you have repeated exposure to that stimulus, your reaction becomes less. And, and this runs the gamut of all levels of human perception, right? So if you are lying in a field and it's a sunny day and your eyes are closed and the sunlight's filtering through your eyes and so it's filtering through and giving you all this red, right? I'm sure most people have experienced this. You do that long enough, uh, all, then the, the neurons in your retina that are responsible for firing when they see red start firing less. And then when you open your eyes and you look around the world, it, looks, it has this blue shade to it, right? And it works also for very much more complicated experiences. You know, if you go on a long road trip you know, through the wilderness of Canada and it, you have this, these beautiful vistas in front of you, the first day it's going to blow your mind. And the second day it's going to be really nice. And the third day it's going to maybe start to be a little bit boring. And by the fourth day you're ready to have a completely new experience. And so that's something that we have to constantly be fighting with as content producers um, and thinking about. Now, Love and Radio, um, it started in 2005, um, like I said, and we were basically kind of out in the woods um, with no established audience in a serious sort of way until this current iteration of the podcast boom. And I think that gave us a real advantage in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of the people who are starting shows now um, ha have, a, have a funny kind of disadvantage. Even though there are more opportunities for people now, I think it's also, um, it's, it's harder to make a product that isn't scrutinized immediately. 
Um, obviously, like being scrutinized and being critiqued is very, very important. But um, I think it's really important for us to create places for ourselves where we can be playful, where we can try out new ideas, and have, have situations in which we can, um, we can fail and the consequences aren't that dire, right? Um, there's, a, uh, there's a radio group in the San Francisco Bay Area um, who, who meets up every couple of weeks. They give uh, homework assignments to each other. Um, they, don't, they don't play each other stuff that they've put on the air. Um, they just play each other these, these homework assignments. And I think most of them are not super listenable. Um, but it has this, like, this spirit of play infused in it that I think can, can help us develop in more creative ways. So things like that. And I'm sure there, there are other people who have other ideas. Um, because when you take risks in the context of being in a public forum, it is a risk, which I know is tautological and, and ridiculous thing to say, but I don't think we, we realize that, that in order to take risks, we have to be willing to potentially sacrifice something, right? And that becomes more difficult as, uh, as we develop an audience, because then we have something that that's something that I struggle with all the time. Because for eight years, I was making stuff in this like, arguably solipsistic way, uh, but I didn't, I didn't have to worry about like, pissing people off. You know? Maybe I'd get an angry email now and again, but it really never got under my skin because I wasn't making it for that person. I was, I was just making it to sort of entertain myself. Right? Now it's different. Now I have producers... Uh, who are employees, you know. Um, so there's, like, there's more on the line now. And um, my instinct is still to just kind of say, fuck it. <laughs> uh, but that's something I have to, I have to actually contend with now. Um, so uh, an example of this is um, a piece that we played last year um, was from a, another podcast uh, called... Uh, run by a woman named Zoe Nightingale. And she is, I mean, talk about unique people, unique experiences. I do not know anyone who's like her. She does these super off-the-wall, man-on-the-street interviews. And, um, uh, and I actually um, came across her show from uh, coming home from a Third Coast conference, actually. And I'd been listening to all this, like, Super duper earnest uh, radio pieces, which are great. I have nothing against that. Um, but you know, after listening to like a whole weekend of it, uh, you know, I was ready for something else. And then I turned on her her show, and um, and this is what it sounded like. I feel like you might have a really amazing story for other people who are. The story's not important. Just it. You just, just what. Because for other people who are who like maybe it's, could it's use nothing. your my, words my, to my story is nothing. It's all about Jesus. You seem like if really you come into His obedience and you really want to know who He is, that He'll come to you. But we must die. You know, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this is the judgment. But that we may die in the G in Jesus' name. That the that the you know um, that we're going to be killed for His name. This is going to happen. If you love Jesus Christ, you're going to be killed. But if you know what, whatever you suffer here, our lives are a vapor in the wind. 
that they're here one day and gone the next. Right. If you save your life, you're going to lose it, Jesus said. But if you lose your life for his name's sake, you're going to gain it. You're going to rise to everlasting life. To fear ye not, for God is with you. For our lives are temporary. That we're not, None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. But that we may stand with God and behold his glory and be with him in paradise. Okay. Whatever you suffer here, you're going to gain eternal life. To not even trip. Don't worry about what you're going to suffer here. So, just as a side, I just wonder, you ever meet girls doing this? You ever meet, like, other Christian women who come to you and say, like, I really believe in what you're doing and, like, take them home or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> this would be a great way to meet Christian singles, right? I mean, you're no. like, you've got a, oh, you're like a walking I mean, billboard. I mean, a lot of different people, but, you know, I'm not here to, to, to match up or meet up with anybody. I'm here to, to but bring But you still have sex, even though you're Christian, you can still have sex. <laughs> I can if I want, but, But you, you don't know, want to? You know, I live day by day, you know, maybe it'll happen, maybe not, but, you know, I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on okay. bringing the message of Christ. So, like, if a Jewish girl came up to you and wanted to talk to you about Jesus and she said, I have a thing for guys who love Jesus and she wanted to take you home, <laughs> I don't you would know. say no to me? I don't know. I'm going to go home and cry if you say no. You don't know? Are you rejecting me? <laughs> Fill my vessel with your Jesus love. You'd say no? I'm offended, honestly. Honestly, I need to go to the gym, I guess. I mean, maybe if I was wearing a shorter I'm skirt, blessing. would it help? I'm blessing. I, <laughs> I just, I really would love to know, did you go to jail? Did you kill someone? Like, what did you do? I know you did something. I see it in your eyes. You were a bad boy who's gotten good. I know it. I see it in you. It's, it's no, so important to me. Like, people's stories are the things important. that I help. I don't, you know, I'm just... You know, my, my it's story, your story must be so good. It must be so good. You must have done something so awesome. I wish you would tell me. I, do, I, I, do I don't believe you. I think you went to jail for something awesome, like grand larceny like uh, of like 15 pounds of methamphetamine. Something my, incredible with guns and machetes and like, like you were like one of those Mexican drug lords with like a gold gun and like a skull and crossbones on it. You were just balling out in like a, in like a Bentley with like three hot Colombian girls sucking your dick while you were driving down the road. Because you have to ball out that hard to have to come to Jesus this hard. I think, like, there's no way you can come and stand on the street and not have had the most baller, baller fucking life that ended in jail to get you to this point. No? I just, I just love the Lord, and, you know, he... Nobody just loves the Lord. Because you, didn't, you weren't raised this way. You found it. Nobody finds Jesus and, and, and latches onto it this hard without some fucked up shit going down. I know this. This is the only thing I know. No. Can you confirm nor deny some fucked up shit went down in your life? And you can use different words if you don't use those words now that you're a Christian. I'm just just going to keep it sim simple as through many trials and tribulations. I, I don't want to... You should be a politician, but, dude. You're really good. Because I'm pretty good at getting stories out of people, and you won't even budge. I'm impressed, honestly. You should be... You should run for Senate. Be like, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Like, you could be great at that. I'm just going to continue to let the spirit move. <laughs> okay. You know, let God All move. right. Let God move. What happens to Jews, though? What happens when I die? Am I going to hell? Uh -oh. I hope we all receive Christ. I'm not here against. Oh, okay, but I can tell you. I can tell you for sure. I'm not going to receive Christ. So what's going to happen to me? Do I go to hell? You don't know that for sure. I know for sure. No, I have. I no, promise no, you. No, no. I come from no. the longest line no. of doctors, lawyers, curmudgeons. Imagine Larry David and Woody you. Allen. And Jesus loves you. Jesus doesn't love me. Yes, does. No, he does not. He doesn't love Jews. That's why does Jesus love Jews? He's he the most self-hating Jew on the planet. Because he loves them. I'm going to purgatory for sure. I'm going to fly around like a headless baby with wings. You've got hope for me personally? Yes. yes, personally. I have hope for me too. I hope I find Jesus. That sounds fun. I'd love to take no responsibility for my actions and end up in like a white world of clouds and sex and drugs. And That's what I imagine heaven is, right? It looks like Carlito's way, only fun. It's, it's nothing of the temporary that if he shows you paradise, you, I, I know that you'll love it. 
If he truly shows you paradise, you're going to love it. But I got to tell you, living in sin is super fun. I'm having a great time not believing in Christ and doing drugs and having fun and running around. and It's really fun. You think having Christ's love is more fun? I'll ch I challenge you to a fun off. Jesus Christ versus sin. I bet sin wins for sure. Maybe short term win. Maybe you win long term. You're like the long con. I'm short con. I'm going to keep letting the spirit move. <laughs> you are so good. So uh, when uh, we put out uh, that episode, we lost about 30,000 subscribers, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I, th I think for those of you who are not familiar with Love and Radio, uh, I think the context, too, is uh, I think there is sort of a, a very deep empathy that's inf infused in all the stories that we work on. And, uh, and this is one where we did not have that. We've done a lot of controversial stories over the years, um, but I think for a lot of people, um, that was just like a bridge too far. That's sort of the lack of empathy, you know? Um, and, and the fact that I think she was the one holding the microphone, I think completely changed, changed the dynamic. Now, um, a lot of people loved it, too. I mean, I also got a lot of positive feedback. I don't want to downplay that. Um, and, uh, and she ended up getting a, like a television pilot uh, as a result of us, us featuring her. Um, but, uh, but you have to be willing to make risks. So um, The thing is, it's like there, you can, there are also rewards to that as well. Um, and uh, I think a great example of that is uh, this, uh, this podcast, Strangers. Uh, it's done by a friend of mine, Leah Tao. And um, she, uh, a couple years ago, started working on a series of stories where she interviewed ex-boyfriends and ex-dates as a way of trying to figure out what, where things were going on in her relationships. And, uh, and this was something that she had never really done anything like before. It was mostly kind of her featuring other people's stories, you know. Um, so here, here's an excerpt. What was it with us that didn't click? Mm -hmm. Can you cut it down to like personality or an attraction thing or what do you think it is? All I remember was, and this is the honest truth, is that I really liked you and I thought you were really interesting and cool and I wanted you actually to be in my circle of friends. You know, I would love, oh, yeah, I'm friends with Leah Tao. Yeah, she's really cool. You should meet her. Like, I wanted to be friends with you, but I was like, I don't know if I want to date that person. You know what I mean? But if you had to sort of pinpoint the reason why we didn't go out again, do you have any thoughts on that? I really don't think there's, like, a secret sauce to it. I really just think it has to do with chemistry, and you just know when you meet that person whether you think there's a potential or not. And I don't think there's, like, anything you can do or any huge mistakes like not to do. I mean, aside from like the basic grooming things, sure, take a shower, you know, <laughs> <laughs> make sure you're presentable. Um, but it's hard to quantify this thing of chemistry, like what makes it work. And sometimes I go on dates and I'm like, yeah, I'm not really feeling it. But I sort of feel like, oh, if I go on a couple more dates, sometimes I discover something else. Mm -hmm. Do you think you always know? Yeah, I did that as well. Like you would 
go on a first date and it was like, well, that went okay. And I, I don't hate that person. And, you know, <laughs> let's see where this goes a little bit. I'm not crazy about this person. But, and what I found out was that like, it wasn't a case for me, at least for me, that the more you date someone that there's, oh, there's these layers that all of a sudden, like I'm seeing a different side of this person that I didn't see. I never experienced that. I've really felt like the, the few people that I felt that there was some potential that like I kind of felt it in my heart, like the, the first the first meeting. I think this is part of where I've gone wrong, at least when I first started dating. Because my son's father, who was my last relationship, was such a terrible choice for a mate for me, and because I knew it, or should have known it, from the very beginning, I stopped trusting my own instincts after him. If someone left me feeling sort of, eh, I almost thought that was a good sign. Don't go for the butterflies in the belly. That's a bad sign. If someone isn't repulsive to you, has a job, and most of his teeth, go for it. But maybe the guys I went out with did want more butterflies in the belly and knew we didn't have that. Perhaps they weren't on board with my internal reasoning of Okay, nothing about this excites me, but there's nothing really wrong with him. I mean, he seems okay, just okay. And maybe I shouldn't have been on board with that either. Somehow when my heart got ripped out of my chest by my fiance who left me while I was pregnant, I lost my compass and I developed this scarcity mentality. Like someone who'd lived through the Great Depression Sure ain't gonna be easy finding a husband now. You're pushing 40 and have a kid. You better settle. I avoided flirting with guys I thought were exciting because, uh uh-oh, danger. And I was convinced that any cool guy my age who wasn't already married was never gonna be. And my self-esteem after my fiance left me made me think I just couldn't get those guys anymore. So I never even responded when some hottie wrote to me online. I became very practical about it all. If someone had a kid and lived in my neighborhood, or not too far, I was like, give it a try. But when those guys then reject you, the ones you felt you had to work hard to talk yourself into, well then your confidence takes a real nosedive. And then you think perhaps the answer is to go for even less exciting guys. And that is a downward spiral. Bye only really became aware of in hindsight, which was that I think I needed to process this really painful breakup I'd been through by telling the story of what happened. And um, I was less aware of that kind of personal motivation to, you know, confess (laughs) my pain. But I I think that ended up being uh, important to the entire process. Maybe in some ways, I think I I was purposely deluding myself. But, you know, I, I also had a big bad computer crash like the week that I was editing the first one and it was due let's say on Wednesday I think it was and it was horrible and I lost all this time and I was way 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 behind and I was I'm actually in my son's room right now and I remember I was in his closet recording at 3 a.m. when it was due at 9 a.m. I was recording the the last of, of of it and still editing it and like adding music and just stayed up all night 
And so it felt really unfinished. Like it was like delivering a painting where the paint is still completely wet. I couldn't go to sleep. I was so riled up and like nervous and like, this is a mistake. And if I'm going to do something so personal, it should be really sharp and perfect. And I should have thought it through more and I should have had other people listen. And I should have done all of these things to make sure that this was actually something I could send out in the world. And so I started typing an email to the engineer where I said, you know, I've never done this and I'm sorry to miss a deadline, but I don't mix this. I, I'm going to have to redo it, think it over and uh, just don't mix it today. And as I was typing that email, an email came in from her, the engineer who was mixing that episode. And she said, oh, my God, Leah, this is the greatest thing you've ever done. I was totally riveted and floored by it. And I think it's amazing. And then I thought, all right, fuck it. So what was the reaction like when you, when you sent it out into the world? It was huge and, and extremely positive. N- not exclusively positive. And, you know, I've continued. It, it developed into an entire series of initially four episodes. And then I did a follow-up. And then I did another follow-up. And then I did another follow-up. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's become a kind of ongoing series on the show. And every time, you know, there are people who say, uh, you know, oh my God, like, this is the worst crap ever, you know, enough with the host and her pathetic love life. Like, can we please just get no more of this narcissistic, self-indulgent, whiny bullshit? And so the people who hate it really hate it, you know? And I think I actually, you were one of the people I asked advice from because I, I was like, I, you know, had put out the first one and then, uh, there was a huge positive reaction from people from all over the world. I mean, I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails and voicemails and all that from people uh, from literally all over the world, from like Kazakhstan and Mumbai and Sweden and, you know, everywhere saying, oh, my God, I'm single, too. And thank you for speaking the truth about all these fears that we all have and all these questions. And, you know, we're always trying to present ourselves in such a positive light. And inside, we feel like such abject losers, (laughs) because we're apparently the only ones who haven't figured this out. And thanks for making me feel less alone with all that. And so, um, you know, that was the, the the lovely, lovely thing was that I, I hadn't even anticipated that. It was a very personal project and I just had to do it for myself. But I also, um, you know, of course, sometimes you have this tendency that even if you only get one negative email for every like 500 positive emails you get, you, you kind of notice those because they speak to a fear. You know, there's always a fear like, God, is this narcissistic or self-indulgent or is it relevant? Is it art? Is it like the worst of like reality TV that I've now somehow put in radio form? <laughs> like, am I speaking to something valuable here or am I just being an exhibitionist, uh, a whiny exhibitionist? And uh, that was a fear that I had. So when people said, oh, my God, enough with this whiny exhibitionist, you know, (laughs) I, uh, you know, it stung some. And I think I I wrote to you and a couple other uh, friends who are producers and said, uh, like, ah, you know, should I not put up the second one? Like, is this a mistake? You know, iTunes is promoting the show and maybe it's a bad time to be putting up like another terrible, self-indulgent, miserable episode. And uh, I remember you and the others said, you know, I mean, a strong reaction, you know, the best thing you can get after a five-star review on iTunes is a one-star review because at least 
people feel really strongly and not blah, because at least people really care and they're really engaged. And at least it's, it's interesting and exciting in that way. And so I took that advice and, and kept going. Um, so there's, there's a couple of points in there I just wanted to repeat. Um, one is um, the, this idea that it's better to have a one-star review than a three-star review. And I, I do think that's true. I think you want to provoke a strong reaction in people if you want to stand out. Um, the other thing is, um, is this, uh, you know, cultivating a little bit of an attitude of, of kind of not giving a fuck um, and just taking that leap, as scary as it may be, you know. Um, sometimes you have to imagine like you're Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom when he steps out over to the, uh, over the chasm. I don't know if you remember that scene, but... Last Crusade, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, I think this is very true. So not giving a fuck does not mean being indifferent. It means being comfortable with being different, right? Um, this is a great article, by the way, if you Google it. Um, I highly recommend it, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Uh, so how, how do you deal with the blowback, right? If you're an emotionally empathic person, um, that kind of stuff is going to sting. It's going to feel bad. But, uh, but how do you sort of prepare for it psychologically? And I, I think for me, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, it was a huge epiphany for me was listening to an interview with Jon Stewart. I tried to, tried to find it for this presentation. So maybe I just dreamt it. I, I actually don't know. Um, but I believe it was Jon Stewart who was talking about his, um, his early stand-up career um, and what the turning point was for him. This is you know, way before he did The Daily Show or anything like that. And he talked about going up on stage and being afraid of bombing, which every comedian does, right? Um, and he, he'd be afraid of of bombing, and that would kind of tighten everything up, and so he wasn't comfortable on stage, um, and it made it counterintuitively more likely that he would bomb. And for him, the big turning point was, was the point at which somehow he's able to jujitsu it such that instead of being afraid of bombing, he, he kind of welcomed it it kind of felt, made him feel alive. Like, it was this exciting thing. He was in this moment, and people would be heckling him or booing him. And once he turned that corner, it happened way less. Um, the other point I want to make is, um, I think it's really important for all of us in this room, too, to, to not just look to other kind of story-driven uh, audio forms as sources of inspiration. Um, there's a lot of great stuff out there for sure, but I do think we, we work within a medium um, that is a little bit more niche, and so I don't think it's had a lot of the same kinds of um, very intense creative investigations uh, that film has, for instance, um, even though radio's been around for basically as long. Um, so, um, so look to film, look to TV, figure out how can I 
take that trick that I just saw and translate it in an audio-only context. Because if you steal those things, no one will realize you're stealing them. And you'll, they'll think you're smart. Um, and in addition to those forms, I think, I think audio art um, has a huge, huge role in this as well. Um, and for me, uh, one thing that I think has influenced the show as well is this uh, project that I first heard of at Third Coast, I think in 2005. Um, Kenneth Goldsmith was, was giving a talk that year um, and, uh, and played some selections from a, a group called Language Removal Services. Um, there's not a lot of information about who these people are or if it's one person, um, but there's a lot of these, these audio links that you can just you can Google around, you can find them. Um, and they basically, they take celebrities or particular topics and they cut out uh, anything semantic. And it sounds... That's Marilyn Monroe. Um, here's a William Burroughs. are way less giggly than uh, yesterday's crowd. <laughs> um, I just love those. Um, and I love, I love uh, that you get a full sense of the person's personality, even though there's, there's, no, there's no actual content there, you know? It's all just from the breaths and, and this sort of non-semantic detritus. Um, so I remember hearing that, and I was like, okay, how do we, how do we take that and we put that into the context of radio documentary, for lack of a better term, right? And this was, this was my attempt at doing that. Um, it was a piece from eight, eight years ago? Or, yeah, nine years ago? Jesus. Uh, this, uh, this was a, um, uh, a story I did about a pair of rogue taxidermists 
Um, now, for those of you who are not familiar, Rogue Taxidermy is a, a group of artists who use animal parts as their medium of choice. So they take different animal parts and they stitch them together to make new animals. And one of the guys in this particular episode, his name is Takeshi Yamada. Um, there were two things that really struck me, I mean, beyond his, what he was saying, uh, was that he showed up to the interview with like a huge pile of Mardi Gras beads on. So you can hear him sort of jangling in the interview. Um, but more importantly, he had this very idiosyncratic speaking style where he would, um, he was like this super excited guy and he would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk uh, without taking a breath for a very, very long time. And in that process of talking like that, this like spittle would like build up in his mouth and then he would finish the thought and he would go, <laughs> so keep an ear out for that. Can I just get you to say your name and your profession? Yes. Hello, uh, my name is Takeshi Yamada. I am an artist in Coney Island, Brooklyn, New York. If you leave even a single grain of rice on your dish, God will destroy your eyes. I really hate the concept of wasting. Whether it is the food or animals, if it is the freshly killed animals, you have to eat. Don't waste anything, except the poop, you know. But even poop, take it, bring it to the garden, use other fertilizer. <laughs> Don't waste anything. <laughs> but only difference between the big fish eating a small fish and human eating fish is we show this respect. If you don't eat it for just for killing purpose, and if you don't have guts to skin and take meat with your own hand, it's not respectable. That's why I'm against abortion. And uh, I'm for the eating aborted baby. Hey, uh, this is Nick. I just wanted to jump in here because I wanted to play back what Takeshi just said in case you missed it. So, uh... Here it is. That's why I'm against abortion. And uh, I'm for the eating aborted baby. <laughs> and same token, I'm, I'm supporting wife or husband, uh, wife or husband, whoever dies, one spouse has a right to eat them, cook them and eat them. So it becomes their part of their body is consumed and they become joining as the other one. I'm supporting cannibalism, but for the sanctity of life. Would, you, would for, you ever do that yourself? If my if I get married with wife, she die, sure, I'll cook her. I'll eat. <laughs> Why not? Um so that's a sort of first attempt, but I think um I think that's continued to infuse the uh the spirit of the show. Um so I'm gonna play uh, a later example that I think is a, a somewhat more sophisticated um use of that kind of technique. Um this is from a, uh, an episode called Fix, which is an interview with uh, Jason Leopold, who now I think is the lead investigative reporter for Vice. 
Um, at the time, he was working for truthout.org. And uh, he was telling the story of kind of his early, earlier adult life, um, during which he worked in the music industry and um, had developed a, a pretty serious cocaine addiction um, and had begun stealing uh, from his employers in order to, to feed that. Um, I, there was this really amazing moment that happened in the middle of the interview. Um, and unfortunately, um, that amazing moment was preceded by a really incredibly obtuse, long-winded question by me. Um, so when I uh, created a, a dry cut of this episode um, and sent it to Brendan Baker, um, who is the sound designer for our show and producer, uh, I was thinking, like, like my, my question, it, it, it was so windy, it was very difficult to edit down into something small. Um, but I was just like, screw it, I'm just going to send this cut to Brendan, and maybe we can figure out how to edit this part down somehow. Um, and then he sent it back to me, and this is, this is what he had done. You know, I'm not actually sure if I, if I got the phone call or if I made the phone call, but anyway, it was uh, to her former colleague, and uh, she says, you know, I, I know you're leaving town, and, uh, you know, you're moving. Why don't you come down to a bar called Sticky Mike's Frog Bar? I want to have a, a going-away party, you know, we'll have some drinks. And I said, great. Great. As I'm going to the city, I was thinking, I want to get one last, uh, one last bag of cocaine. I wasn't sure if I should do that first or if I should do that last. The person who was giving me a ride dropped me off uptown. The bar was really close by. So instead of going downtown to score the coke, I went to the bar first. I went into the bar and walked toward the back. Stood up and looked around. I didn't see anyone. And I was just wondering, like, where, where are they? I can't see anyone. I suddenly felt this like really sharp tap on my shoulder, like where the nail, like the, the, the nail of the index finger went right into my shoulder. It hurt. NYPD detective, turn around, hands behind your back. I felt my heart went into my throat. I had no idea what was, you know, what was happening. Uh, and you know, I turned around and, you know, walked out of the bar. And, you know, the bar was packed. And, and I just couldn't see anyone's faces. It was... I'm telling you this story right now as I'm telling it. It's like I'm... That lump is right back in my throat. I mean, this was 16 years ago. And yet it's it feels like yesterday. Do you feel like the more you retell the story that helps you sort of react in a sort of a non-emotional way or do you feel like you're kind of stuck into reliving it every time that you retell it yeah um i i really want to escape from it and i feel like the only way i could tell it is to relive it which is for me unfortunate because it's a traumatic you know point in my life yeah well the, you know part of the reason that i ask and i don't want to get too much into sort of over psychologizing things, but um, so my dad—he's uh, he, a psychiatrist. He works a lot in uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and sort of the way that he 
um, views people who have PTSD is that they do get stuck, that they stay in this sort of like emotional response to whatever that occurs. And that the way that they get Right. Clean and sober, you've you've moved past it, you know, in a, in a real way, but in an emotional way. It's just just hearing hearing that emotion in the voice, it sounds like in an emotional way. You haven't totally moved past it. No, I haven't, and. Um... Uh, yeah, I, I definitely have not. Can, you, Nick, can you hang on one sec? Yeah, of course. You know what? I'm hang on one sec. I just got to run to the to the restroom. Yeah, of course. Hey, I'm really, really sorry. I'm, I don't know if it's just talking about this or it's coming down with the flu, but I'm, uh, I'm not feeling great. Yeah. Oh man. Um, well, do you, do you want to reschedule? We can, we can do something else. I don't want to. Would that be too much? Would that be okay? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, You were set up by one of your colleagues. It was a total setup. The whole it was a setup. I remember the handcuffs being slapped on my wrists. I remember how cold it felt. But I don't remember the ride to the police station. Um, so one big caveat. Um, this working this operating this way is very, very exhausting. And uh, that like that move, right? We can never ever do it again. Like all the all the creative energy that went into uh, making that decision, it's it's gone, and you move on. You go on to the next thing, and um, and when you don't have um, frameworks that you can kind of rely on, um, you're gonna make it much more difficult for yourself uh, to take the time and energy to break out of those forms. Um, I think one example, a recent example of this is, um, is from a podcast called Reply All. Um, PJ Vote is also giving a talk after this, I think, or right now? Okay. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a show about the internet. It's a, it, in some ways a very, fairly traditional public radio show investigating stories around the internet. Um, again, like pretty character story driven, and uh, and I listen to like I have a a large variety of different podcasts that I listen to, and whenever I hear a show that kind of comes out of a more traditional public radio um, framework, whenever they go against that framework, I'm always like, oh, how did people react? You know, um, so this is a uh, an episode that was released in August. Uh, and reply all, and uh, I'm just gonna play it. From Gimlet, this is Reply All, a show about the internet. I'm PJ Vote. 
And I'm Alex Goldman. In this week's episode, it's a little different. We're going to focus mostly on how computers work. And we're going to start by interviewing an expert on transistors. This guy doesn't seem to be picking up. I feel kind of relieved. (laughs) I have zero questions about transistors. Could we just roll the credits? Repile is me, PJ Vote, with Alex Goldman. We were produced this week by Tim Howard, Shruti Pinamanani, and Fia Benin. We were edited this week by Alex Bloomberg. Our show was mixed by the Reverend John Delore. Matt Lieber is a job that you love so much that you actually sort of forget to go outside. And then one day you just find yourself wondering, has the 4th of July happened yet? And so you look out a window and you realize actually it's the end of August. Summer's almost over. And you just feel this tiny little teaspoon of regret. And then you realize you could just go outside. The building has an elevator. What if you took it? Nice outside. Yeah, it's pretty beautiful. Where are we right now? We're at Central Park, bro. We're at Central Park. That guy had a sign advertising carriage rides. Well, there's a bunch of horses over here. Oh, nay. Right, guys? We were interested in taking a horse and buggy ride. Okay, sir. The two of us. This goes around by Balta, the Boat Pond, Bethesda Fountain, Bow Bridge, Cherry Hill, the Lake, Strawberry Fields, all that. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, guys. So where are you from? Uh, The west of Ireland, guys. How long have you been in the city? 18 years here now, guys. And how long have you been uh, pilot... How do you say it? Piloting? Horse and carriage driver. Uh, Horse and carriage driver. 18 years as well, guys. Wow. Living the American dream. Looking at a horse's backside every day, guys. It's not super crowded. It's kind of serene. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I felt this at peace. Stomach full of hot dog. Carriage under my butt. (laughs) Co-host on my side. See, you're telling me this isn't romantic at least a little bit. I guess it's a little romantic. A man just took a picture of you. Really? Yeah. Uh, this carriage is pretty slow. Should I jump off and run after him? It's going to end up on somebody's like vacation slide album where they're like, and there was this guy with a microphone in a carriage. Yeah. Okay, I can handle it. Greatest city on earth. Uh, so that goes on for another 25, 30 minutes like that. Um, anyway, I talked, to, I talked to BJ about this. This thing happens a lot at Reply All, which is like, Somebody suggests an idea that is, um, I don't want to say bad, but like on its face kind of absurd. And then like we try to see what, like, like a lot of times I'll suggest something that's absurd and then I'll be like, but not really. And then Tim often will be like, no, 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 we're really going to do it. We felt like we had somehow all of us gotten like trapped a little bit in a thing we loved. Like we were just making the show all the time and like, like, we, we felt like we, we'd forgotten something. This is going to be an episode where we break format and we take a day off.
what tends to happen is like I have a lot of courage in the beginning of stuff and then none throughout the process. So at first it was like, yeah, it'll be a throwaway. What do you expect? It's August. And then when we really actually were out there gathering tape, I was really scared where I was like, I don't, this sucks. Like as radio, this sucks as like a day. It's nice. But as radio, like nothing is happening. And then once the stuff actually like we, we finished recording at like 10 and uh, the warehouse stuff, I was like, okay, I think, I think, I think maybe this could be good. This could be something. Um, but we didn't feel like what we tend to do is like, we come up with an idea that seems like we don't know what it would look like to execute it. And there's a real sense of like freedom and joy and excitement and, and who cares what happens. And then when we start executing it, there's a lot of fear about making it good. And then like, usually hopefully you land on your feet at the end. And you feel like, okay, we, we would like whatever weird promise we made, like we fulfilled. But, but I felt, I felt scared and I felt scared when it went out. Like I was checking Facebook and Twitter in the morning being like, oh God, what if they hit us? What? So what were you scared of specifically? That they'd hate it. And because it was an episode that was so much just like me and Alex, that they'd hate it in a way that made them not like the show. You know, it was like, I'm fucking sick of these guys. That that like, if it didn't work, I thought it was going to feel like listening to a, sometimes when you listen to like a live show of a podcast that ordinarily you like, but you're just like, I'm not there. And you're having fun without me. And like, I don't like this as much as you like it. You know what I mean? So a lot of people liked it fine. Some people loved it. There was like a proportion of people that were just like, "Oh no!" Like, like, like uh, this is this is like the way that people hate the way that people never hate like mild things. You know, when you when you have an episode that's like, you know, typical of what you do, and maybe not the strongest example. People are like, "Ah, whatever." They pass. But like the people who disliked it, um, truly disliked it. But I think in a lot of ways, like the I think for a lot of people, it's their favorite episode, and I think. Because I think it did succeed on its terms, and it felt different, and it felt exciting to hear something different that worked. The fact that people really were excited and got it on the level we meant it was really cool. Like, it was, it was, it felt very, very, very rewarding. Very good stories often sound good on the pitch level, but the stories that you do that you, like, kind of drive you crazy because you're like, I don't know if I'm going to do another one that I feel so great about, those ones usually do not sound like good pitches. Like, we're going to take a day where we hang out in New York and don't really do anything is the worst pitch in the world. Um, so I, I think Pete is downplaying a little bit of the reaction. I mean, I think the, it, it was overwhelmingly positive in terms of how it was received. Um, and uh, I, I remember listening to this and immediately going to their Facebook page just to be like, okay, how are people going to react to this? And uh, I don't think I saw a single negative comment. People were, were super into it. Um, so as, as you're making stuff, um, I would encourage you to make that leap. I would encourage you to fall in love with the work that you're doing, um, but doing so in a way that is still continues to be self-critical and open to criticism. You know, um, I, don't, I would not have made it uh, eight years in the woods making Love and Radio if I didn't enjoy it for its own sake, right? But I was also constantly thinking about people's feedback. I was playing it for people and, and allowing it to develop in that way. Kale, just parking in to let you know we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with the rest of this session. Progressive. Radio Adventures. 
This American life, I might reply. The show about all the unseen. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, ReSound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a big caveat to all of this, and you, that is you do need to learn the rules to smash them. Um, I think part of the reason that the, the initial promise of podcasting back in 2006, 2007 failed is because all these new amateurs came on the scene, and they broke the rules, but they broke the rules in, a non, in, in an unintentional way. And, uh, you know, that classic example that every art, art school teacher tells you in fifth grade or whatever, um, you know, in order for Picasso to become Picasso, he first had to learn how to draw like a normal person, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so don't get ahead of yourself, you know? Um, you know, think about following a more conventional structure and then start thinking about ways that you can, you can tweak it. And think about what are the f- fundamentals of good radio. Um, so what are the fundamentals? Uh, well, to give you, give you an example, uh, how many people here are familiar with a show called Peep Show? And um, it's kind of unique, uh, in fact, quite unique, that the entire show is shot POV. Um, that is a point of view camera style. 
Um, so if you have uh, a character who has, they also have internal monologues, uh, like voiceover monologues, and if you have one character by themselves, you're just looking around the room from their perspective. Maybe you see them in a mirror. Um, or if you have two people walking down the street um, having a dialogue with each other, if you want to get a shot of both of them, they would bring in a passerby who would be coming from the opposite direction and suddenly switch into that person's head, right? Um, it's a very unique style. So um, David Mitchell, who plays Mark, he had something to say about it. A lot of the time, I wished that we could have done something more normal. I'd wanted to make an old-fashioned sitcom with a studio audience. I liked the POV scripts very much, but felt that the shooting style was a gimmick. Still, I reasoned, Rob and I were virtually unheard of, and so some sort of gimmick was needed as an excuse for giving us our own show. And with the benefit of hindsight, I'm now pleased that Peep Show has a distinctive filming style. I think it's interesting, often helps the jokes, and seldom hampers them. Basically, though, I think the show succeeds in the same way as a conventional British sitcom. It's about two people with whom the audience can identify, trapped in a situation with which the audience can also identify. Like all of us, they want love, money, success, security. But they probably end up pepper-spraying more acquaintances, urinating in more churches, and burning more dogs than most of us. So what made that show good was not... Um this sort of more experimental filmmaking style. It still had to have those fundamentals. Um, so I, I've thought about this a lot of like what, what makes for good radio, you know, and not, just, not just sort of narrative documentary type radio, but a, any kind of radio, or what makes good movies, or what makes good anything, um, which is a basically impossible task. But as far as I can tell, um, if you have these three things in your piece, you have a very solid foundation to build on, you know? And I think the best Love and Radio pieces have all of this stuff. Um, and it gives us way more leeway to play around the edges and, and, and build on top of that foundation. But it's only because we have that foundation that it's able to operate. Um, we're running out of time, so I'm going to... I'm just going to very quickly go through them. Um, but uh, detail is sort of the, the sort of rich aesthetics that come into a piece. Um, obviously, you know, very getting specific, having people say strong metaphors, um, things like that. Tension is anything uh, that feels unresolved, that captures people's attention. Um, and then surprise is kind of the, the other side, what do you get on the other side of that? And uh, it can be as simple, something as simple as just like a good, good well-timed joke, um, or it could be some kind of reflection that you weren't expecting. Now, these three things, they are the fat and salt of radio pieces, right? And if any of you are cooks, you know even if you're making a meal that's super delicious and healthy and has all these fresh ingredients in it, you still want to put some fat and salt in it to really make it come alive. Now, if you just have those things, then in terms of food, you end up with this, right? And in terms of media, if you just have those three things and nothing else, you end up with this. So... 
That stuff won't save you. But it is the foundation on which you want to build other things. Um, I think one of the things you said that you say in that piece is that we would be shocked at how much butter goes into everything. Yeah, I, I hope I haven't frightened anyone away, but it, it is usually the, the first thing and the last thing in, in just about every pan. Really? Uh, yeah, that's why restaurant food tastes better than home food a lot of the times. <laughs> butter. Even when you say, look, I'm really, I don't want any butter or I don't want any... No, if you say absolutely no butter, um, just about every chef I know will, of course, uh, refrain But most things have butter because butter makes things taste better. Yeah, it, it's a uh, chef's secret. It mellows sauces. It gives it that, that restaurant sheen and, and um, uh, emulsified uh, consistency that we love. And it's, you know, it's classic. We're, we're and it tastes on. good. Yeah, nothing like it. And it tastes good. So you say that by the average person when they go out to dinner eats about a quarter stick of butter and doesn't know it. Well, assuming, assuming you're going to a French restaurant, a yeah. uh, classic French restaurant, and you have a little bread and butter, you know, but waiting for your appetizer to come on. But by the time you leave the restaurant, you've probably eaten about a stick plus. Sure. A stick plus? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Enjoy your meal. Um, so I, I'd like to end, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to play a, a long excerpt uh, of a piece that we released quite recently called A Girl of Ivory. Unless everyone here has heard it, but I'm guessing there's some who have not. Okay. Um, all right, this, is, this was our season opener for this season. The club is called City Club. My friends and I would go like every Saturday night. It's in a Ramada Inn building. I want to say it's in the basement. The walls are black, but there's like white paint everywhere and there's black lights everywhere. And as soon as you walk in, you're like, man, there's lint everywhere on my clothes because black light does that. There's a jukebox, there's a Doctor Who pinball machine, some ratty couches. Their most popular beverage was the Purple Jesus drink, which was served in test tubes. Never went to the bathrooms. I hear they were intimidating. And what were the, what was the songs and music? That... Mostly goth, industrial, goth, industrial, some metal, mostly goth, industrial. Okay. Anytime a Joy Division song was played, I was out on the floor, Baja's Every Day is Halloween by Ministry, Jesus Built My Hot Rod by Ministry. I was dancing to a song called Jesus Built My Hot Rod in the middle of the dance floor, and I saw him a little bit away from me, I couldn't stop looking at him dancing because he just loved the music so much. He was lost in it, and although his moves perhaps weren't as cool as some of the others, it just looked like he was having a really, really good time. It was like one of those things where it's just like, you know, I kind of saw her approaching through the crowd, and it was just like, you know, you kind of see these blurs of other people, but I saw her distinctly. Do you remember what she was wearing? She had this, like, kind of top split down the middle, stockings, at the time, she had all purple hair. PVC bustier, arm-length gloves, six-inch stilettos, also PVC, and a Hello Kitty headband. Okay. So it's like, goodness gracious. I was basically immobile for like two minutes because I was so taken with her beauty. The first thing that he said to me was, have you got a cigarette? Which was really weird because I wasn't expecting him to be a smoker. So I was like, are you sure? I mean, he was kind of like coughing and spluttering and I was like, are you okay? And he was like, oh, yeah. Um, he was like, can I have your number? I thought, um, yeah, I really want to give him my number, but I'm not going to 
immediately do that because it would just be really obvious that I like him. So I was like, I don't know my number. And he was like, yeah, you do. I did lean in and I was just gazing into her eyes and then I kissed her. And it was, it was, it was what I expected, yet not what I expected. It was the next day and I had a feeling he was going to call. And I really liked that, that he didn't sort of wait for three days and all that. It was great to meet someone who was just themselves and was a nice guy, which he genuinely is a nice guy. I think some girls keep going for the wrong guys, but I had only gone for the wrong guys because there were only bad guys around. As soon as I saw him, I was like, okay, I'm not going to let you go. Between like meeting at City Club and like her moving in, there really wasn't a lot of time. I remember distinctly the day that she arrived. It was July and it was a hot day. I managed to get her in my arms and she get her up the steps. And I was just like, what? Why? You're so heavy. There wasn't a clear moment where he was like, hey, do you want to move in? And I was like, yeah, pick me up and carry me over the threshold. It was more like all of my clothes were at Dave Katz. And I was like, hang on, I actually kind of live at his house now anyway. Was that an adjustment in the relationship, like actually living together? It wasn't so much an adjustment, really, because I think we had gotten so comfortable with each other. You know, nothing really had changed at that point. We're so compatible for each other, I guess. Yeah, we'd spend a lot of time playing video games or watching DVDs or whatever. Lots of photo shoots. There's this great photo that I've got where she's wearing my Joy Division shirt and she's got like a long black skirt and a little pair of cat ears and she's smoking. Sometimes people will either ask me or Shi Chun, what was one of the most memorable moments that you have ever had where you knew you two were in love? The answer that we have is always the same. It was a time, it was in autumn... Yeah, it was a week before Halloween. It was raining, not raining heavily, but just kind of lightly outside. And it was one of those nights where you're really glad to be inside and warm and snuggly. And he put on this film called Playtime. Votre film. Que vous soyez. It's a film by Jacques Tati, who's a French comedian. It was more or less his statement about the wistfulness of what was then old France, post-war France, being slowly taken over by modern France. I hadn't seen it before, but I found exactly the same bits funny that he did, and we were just really close. We were just wrapped up in each other's arms, just watching this film and just being there in the moment. I, I just had this feeling suddenly that everything was going to be okay. And I looked at him and I was like, it's not just everything's going to be okay, everything's okay now. That was literally one of the most content moments probably of my life. It was like I was looking in a mirror, but seeing what I wanted to see. Normally, when you look in the mirror as a human being, you just see everything. Sometimes you see the flaws more than anything good. But when I looked at him, it was like I was looking in a mirror and seeing only the good bits of myself. It was pretty early on in a relationship. But when you have a moment that soon in your relationship, you know that that person is the one. That is entirely genuine. Hi, my name's Jore. And my friends sometimes call me Shichan. I was born in Tokyo and I was raised in Salford, which is near Manchester. My name is Elena Vostokova. My friends call me Lenka. I live most of my life in Vladivostok in Russia. It was a hard town for me to live because um, I was bisexual in this town and my mother doesn't know this. The first time I had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, it was a boy, and I sat with him by the park and a friend of my mother saw us, and she reported back to my mother. I've seen Lenka sitting on the bench with this guy. 
And, you know, they were laughing at me for having this boyfriend when I was young. I was 16 by this time. I wasn't that young. But they thought this was hilarious, and it was stifling for me to be laughed at for having a boyfriend. It's just pathetic. So what the hell would happen if I had a girlfriend? Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. So this was hard. I mean, life was nice there, but not, not for the hiding this big side of me from my mother. I needed to get far away to have a life I want. I've always wanted to go to America. I used to go on the internet and look up the uh, style, fashion, music. I came across this documentary, these alternative couples. This couple, I just love them so much. I'd never seen anything like this in the world. They were beautiful people. They were interesting. They had interesting ideas, and they were funny, and they were laughing together, and I loved them, and I saw them on this video, and I thought, I want to be with them. I want to be with this guy, this girl, and I, like, I think I fancy them both, okay? So I emailed them. I said, I want to live with you. So what was going through your mind when you got this email? Well, I was like, I kind of read it and I didn't really read it because I was like, this is really crazy. <laughs> I haven't ever met anyone who would be this open before they knew anyone because I'm not really like that. I'm, and I was also really bowled over by how brave it was just to buy a ticket and because it's not cheap, is it? No, I saved, saved off a long time for the ticket. But I think, I know now that I know you, when we've talked about this, Sidori liked that I was nothing to hide. What, but when you first met us, we can't have been how you imagined. When I met you, I was not disappointed. I was more pleased. It was just right. When she uh, came... You looked at yeah. my photo, didn't you? you had, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the next thing I did was you I was like... I look like when I arrived. Yeah, it was important to me because I was like, OK, we're going to be we're gonna be the three of us together. I kind of need to know. Did you tell Dave Cat or what, what happened next? I didn't tell Dave Cat about the email. I think partly because... Well, like, a little bit of me wanted to keep it a secret anyway. Because we share absolutely everything and sometimes it's quite nice to have something that only you know. And I thought, well, if nothing ever happens, it will just be like this tiny thing that I know. And if something does happen, then obviously he's going to find out anyway. <laughs> and he did find out. <laughs> so can you describe what, what it was like when, when you first showed up? Like what? Were um, you nervous? I was really excited. The house was very nice, a little house and... I'd got myself looking as nice as I could in my little, like a corner of a mirror I had broken in half, and I'll check myself then. And I got to the door and I could smell the cakes. And I thought, now I am home. What was it like opening the door? I was really nervous. And in a way, I was more nervous than when I first met Dave Cat because when I first met Dave Cat, it was really straightforward. <laughs> this kind of felt a bit more of a big deal. I felt like if it went wrong, it could go wrong in so many ways because it could go wrong if we didn't like her, it could go wrong if she didn't like us, or maybe none of us would like each other and we'd all laugh about it. I felt that as soon as I saw you, you were like someone who I'd be at school with who I'd really want to impress. Even though um, you're younger than me, I felt like if we were at school, you'd be like the year above me and I'd kind of follow you around copying your hair and everything like that. Although now that I do your hair, I know it's actually quite hard to manage at times, isn't it? Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> how did Dave Cat react? When did he actually find out? It wasn't that night. It was the next day. And how did you phrase it? Like, what did you say? 
I'm here. <laughs> yeah, no. Hi. <laughs> so, so we, um, she did say that. I'm here. We went I was into in his bed. Yeah. I sat in his bed ready and you got me all yeah. dressed up. Yeah. <laughs> With my makeup on. Hi. Yeah. Um, he, we, he came into the kitchen. He was like, because he, he had to go to work. He always gets up, gets the paper, I'll give him breakfast. And he was like, okay, I'm going to go to work in half an hour. Going to have a breakfast. And I was like, why don't you have your breakfast in bed? And he was like, he doesn't really like doing like sort of the crumbs. He's always like, ugh, crumbs will get in the bed. And he was like, no, why? And I was like, just come in <laughs> she was sitting in the bed and we'd done her hair and makeup but also we'd put this hat on her that my uncle had given me which was like a pirate's hat I don't know why we did that but anyway she had that on and uh we came in and she said I'm here hi Dave Cat. <laughs> I'm he, not going yeah <laughs> and he was like okay and then I firstly said I'm sorry that we lied to you but yeah, that's right. I said to Dave Cat how much I was so impressed with him and how much I love Sidore and he could see that I fancied you. He was immediately on board. Yeah, he could definitely see that we were all going to have a good time. <laughs> um, and I think that probably helped. <laughs> Does the issue of jealousy come up? Um... Uh, <laughs> you mean Sidore jealous of me? Or anyone jealous of anyone. I mean, it's sort of... Mm. We have had to work out some things along the way. Um, I think the only time we had to all kind of be honest with each other was perhaps when... I can't remember when it was our wedding anniversary and that brought a bit of stuff up to the surface and I think we all dealt with it pretty well. What happened? Um, it, was, well. it was hard for me because it was a wedding anniversary and I don't have one. It's a very special thing for two people, and there's something that Dave Cat and Sidori have together, and I don't have a wedding anniversary. And I think I was too emotional for this, and it wasn't fair for Sidori. And I'm sorry, I was mean, but I was I was jealous about that a little. And what happened was that the wedding anniversary fell on a night that it should have been Lenkren, yeah, and Dave Cat together, and. I I had to say, oh, I tried to say it really casually, I think, but I didn't realise how hurt you were at the time. And actually, if I'd known how upset you were, I probably would have said, just don't worry, you can go no, in the bed that night. No, it's not fair. You were very kind to me. And and I, I understand it's your wedding anniversary. You, you didn't get married to spite me. You were married before me. So it's wrong for me to feel jealous, but I'm human. And I... You know, there's one part I will never have with Dave Cat and Sidori. I'll not be their wife. It's okay. It's just to get used to this. I think it's harder when things feel unsettled, but once people are all honest, yeah. life isn't perfect, is it? Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm 100% happy all the time just because I'm married. At times I can feel a little bit jealous of you guys, you know. Yeah. Maybe he feels jealous of us some of the time. He's not a woman and... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay, though, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you're okay. It's fine. You were describing it as hierarchical polyamory. Yeah, that's. I had run across that term. Shichan had actually seen it on her Tumblr dashboard. Uh, hierarchical polyamory is. It's basically when you have a relationship that incorporates more than two people. I guess in our context, it was like Elena and Dave Cat and Shidore are all in love with each other. Elena understands that. Shidore and Dave Cat are married, but they still all are able to enjoy each other's company. That's where the hierarchy comes in. Elena will always be my second. 
that was the whole reason why Elena agreed to stay with us. She understood that, yeah, there is a marriage involved. But the thing is, you know, she still wanted a friendship. She still wanted a relationship with someone who's male and someone who's female. She basically decided, that, oh, well, I guess I can be your mistress. If Shichan and I want to do something with someone that isn't each other, we could do it with Elena. And are you exclusive among the three of you, or does Laka go outside the really the, <laughs> um, the threesome, or like how does that work? Shichan is famous for flirting, but again, it's flirtation. It's not necessarily like pursuit. Lenka, for the most part, is just devoted to the two of us. So this is this is a two personal question. You don't have to answer it, but, um, but do you have threesomes together, or how like how does that work? No, no, we don't. We never have threesome together ever. Because um, the bed's too small. I'm just not clear on the logistics of it. Like, who sleeps with who? Like, when? Like, well, how does that all work? Each of us sleeps with Dave Cat. Alternately, we yeah. not sleep together at the same time. And me and uh, Sudore grab time together whenever we can. Mm-hmm. When Dave Cat is at work. Mm-hmm. When Dave Cat is in the bath. <laughs> <laughs> he knows. He's cool with it. He's not, he's, he doesn't mind us. And... Usually, I sleep with Dave Cat because um, my joints aren't as stiff as Sidore. Mm. See, that's the thing. It's, that's, it kind of works to our advantage, though, because I say she's the mistress because Elena is more built for sex, mm-hmm. whereas Sidore, with her stiffer joints, although they have loosened over the past five years, she's more built for love. She has very, as you can see, loose joints. I mean, where you... You know, you, you lift her hand and it doesn't stay. I mean, you can barely, like, turn her hand. Mm-hmm. Her hand will... Yeah, sure. Her fingers are actually kind of broken at this point because the wires that they use in the fingers are not as strong as they could be. Mm-hmm. But, uh, because they've all broken at, like, the base plate in her hand, right? Which is right here if you put her hand right here. But, uh... I've always been intrigued by artifice. I remember distinctly being in second or third grade. My teacher, Miss Mahaffey, was standing at the blackboard writing whatever words in French. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, if she was a robot, what mechanisms would make her move her arm or her hand or her mouth or head, walk from the desk to the blackboard or whatever? I remember I was fascinated with that. It wasn't like a sexual attraction or anything. It was just like a fascination. There's an episode of a show called Ripley's Believe It or Not. You know, they detail all sorts of wacky stuff about, you know, Howard Hughes, the pyramids, the Winchester Mystery House, that sort of thing. They had one segment where they were talking about a humanoid robot that was made in Japan. This uh, roboticist named Shuichi Mizuno had made a gynoid version, well, more like an automata, of Marilyn Monroe. She's wearing a blue dress and holding a guitar. Her head's moving and her lips are moving and she's singing a song. And I remember distinctly thinking that was like the most amazing thing I'd seen in my life. People always get fixated on the fact that I'm in love with dolls, which I am, but my ideal partner would be a gynoid. Now, a gynoid is technically what you would call a female robot. An android is a robot that's made to look like a humanoid male. A gynoid would be a robot that's made to look like a humanoid female. 
I've always thought that artifice is a great way to have things that you can't necessarily have because of like whatever situation, either you're allergic to them or they cost too much or they're messy or whatever. I remember one of the things that kind of drove me from living with my parents is that my father would often make me mow the lawn because that's what fathers do with their sons. I'd be out there and like, you know, sweating, which is also disgusting, mowing the lawn, sneezing for the rest of the day, being bloody miserable about it. At some point I was just like, dad, I don't want to mow the lawn. I'm allergic to cut grass. He's just like, well, I don't care. Mow the lawn. All right, fine. Later. Hachoo, hachoo, hachoo. It's ridiculous. I have said, if I ever got another house, I would rip up all the lawns and replace it with AstroTurf, which I'm sure a lot of people would not be keen on in my neighborhood, but, you know, whatever. So uh, that, that goes on for quite, quite a bit longer. But I think what I would love for the big takeaway of that piece is um, what we did with that piece um, in terms of the actresses and the reveal we could not have done in any other medium except for, for even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Radio or podcasts, you know? And, uh, and I, we're, we are so lucky that we work in the medium that we do because there is so much more to be mined creatively speaking, you know? Film is way harder. There are way more people trying stuff out in film than there are people trying stuff out in radio. Um, so get to work, start mining those things, and, uh, and don't wait for anyone's permission. Thank you. Thank you for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference, and a special thanks to Shelley Staffins, who recorded and mixed all of the presentations from the 2016 conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org, or you can have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. All right, speak soon. Bye.